Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with James M. Lundberg, author of the book Horace Greeley, Print, Politics, and the Failure of American Nationhood. Jake, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Uh, So I am... um I'm assistant teaching professor um, and the director of undergraduate studies in history um, at, uh, at the University of Notre Dame in, in South Bend, Indiana. Um, so I teach classes in U.S. history and I direct our undergraduate program in, um, in, in history. Hmm. What was it that led you to write a book about Horace Greeley? So this is a project that goes back to graduate school. Um, this, was my, this was my dissertation of very, very different, uh, very, very different product from the book. Um, <laughs> but I became interested in Greeley um, when I was reading for my comprehensive exams um, in my, I guess, in my, my third year of graduate school. Um, and I had to read Daniel Walker Howe's book, uh, The Political Culture of the American Whigs, which has a half chapter uh, about Horace Greeley. And I just became totally fascinated by this very bizarre character, um, you know, a newspaper man who was part intellectual, part politician, part celebrity. And it seemed like there really wasn't all that much out there about him um, at the time. Now, I, I wasn't the only one to see this. And there there were some other books that came out while I was working on the project. Um, but the work that did come out didn't I don't think it really got at what I was most interested in, which was the print and journalism angle. Um, this is something that I'd been really interested in going all the way back to college. Uh, you know, I had been very taken uh, with Benedict Anderson's book about nationalism, uh, Imagine Communities, as many people uh, have been taken with that book. Uh, and Anderson talks about newspapers as this kind of key cultural infrastructure in the making in the making of modern nations, uh, which, I, which, you know, as a young college student, I thought was such a cool conceptual idea. Um, and so I, somehow, somehow stuff that I was really interested in, um, all came together in, in, in Greeley. Um, and so, yeah, I went with it. I have to say this, one of the things I enjoyed about your book was how you explore Greeley at this really, uh, pivotal point in the emergence of American journalism, this transition from it as being something of an elite press to being something of a mass press, and his the role that he assumes in this, the how he envisions himself. It, it's difficult to think of, of many people who preceded him who had a similar uh, uh, you know, oracular role, who were the, seeing themselves as not just producers of, of entertainment, but but 
you know, people that were essentially just as public oracles who were seeking to, uh, you know, establish this vision. And I especially like as well how you make it clear it's not just that he sees himself as a person who's going to spout off on the issue of the day, but he has a very, you know, he has a vision that you identify and trace over the course of this very long career in journalism. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think oracular is a is 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 a good word for how Greeley sees and understands himself as a newspaper man, um, and how he sees and understands journalism. Uh, so, so you mentioned that that he he comes up in in, in journalism at this moment when um, the popular press is is absolutely exploding. So he's in he's in New York City. Um, kind of at the m- moment of creation for the modern pop- popular cr- popular press, there are these new, uh, very cheap daily newspapers that are uh, that are coming out. Um, the, the the New York Sun um, later on, a little bit, a couple years later, the the New York Herald, and these are papers that are incredibly, incredibly popular and show you know this this great potential of the press as this this very very popular medium, um, and yet to to Greeley, they're horrifying because they're full of all kinds of uh, kind of low, lowly co- what he sees as lowly content. They're 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 taking these stories and they're kind of scraping them from the underbelly of of urban life. Something that Greeley is kind of horrified by, um, even though he he willingly moved to New York City. Um, <laughs> and so so he 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 thinks that the press is this incredibly powerful tool. Um, for for kind of elevation, for instruction, for uh, for for unifying people and kind of bringing them together and giving them uh, kind of the correct political views and ideas, um, but he sees it as being as being kind of bastardized by by these these popular newspapers, um, and so that's really the genesis of his of his of his vision for himself as, as an as an editor. It's it's something that he develops and articulates. Um, in response to this kind of revolution in the popular press that is that is going on around him, um, I was wondering if you could maybe take us uh, back a bit. How does Greeley get into journalism, and then how does he get to New York? Where, from where is he coming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so Greeley is a is a New Englander originally. Um, he was born into a kind of declining farm family in in New Hampshire um, as as a, a child, his, his father, when, when Greeley was a child, his father lost their farm in a place called Amherst, New Hampshire. And from there, the family kind of bounced around northern New England on rented and very, very unproductive farms. Um, Greeley very much resented his, his parents as people who were on the wrong side of these massive economic changes that were happening in the, in the beginning of the 19th century. Um, he sees them not as victims of these changes, but as 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 kind of personal failures. And so, you know, he he becomes this kind of Whig modernizer striver type, where he sees them as these backward people who have who have just failed to keep up with the times. Um, and when he's a teenager, he kind of splits with the family. Um, it's not it, we we don't know that much about his early life because there's there's very little documentation about it, but. Um, 
while the family is in Vermont, he kind of splits off from the family and becomes apprenticed to a printer in this tiny, tiny town in Vermont that happens to have a newspaper uh, that's called the Northern Spectator, and the town is called East Pulteney, Vermont. Um, and you know, he works at this, he works as an apprentice, and he works at this paper for, for a few years. Um, and, you know, if you are a young printer um, in the 18, late 1820s, 1830s, he goes to New York in 1831, um, New York is a good place to go. Um, as I said before, this is New York to him is this kind of complex and terrifying place. Uh, one that he really never got comfortable with, but it was a place that was exploding in print, um, um, in journalism. And so it's a good place to go. If you're a penniless printer from the sticks who has, you know, <laughs> who has memorized Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. Um, and so, you know, he goes to New York city in 1831 he works in various print shops, um, first, as, you know, just as, as a kind of journeyman printer. Um, he tries his hand at a couple of failed ventures, including a short-lived daily newspaper, um, before he, he founds um, uh, a weekly paper called The New Yorker, which is kind of news and literary weekly, nothing to do with the modern New Yorker. Um, uh, this is a paper that's, that's kind of modeled on the, the weekly newspapers that he grew up with, um, and that he worked on while he was, while he was, while he's an apprentice. So that's kind of, that's kind of how he gets, he gets started. Uh, this is also, I think a good point, which we can talk about a bit, his involvement with politics, because this is something mm -hmm. that it, it's, it's fascinating how we have this throughout American history, this, uh, ever evolving dynamic between, pr uh, between publishing print journalism on the one hand, and then the political scene on the other. And you described not just his efforts and labors as a journalist and an editor, but you're also talking about this engagement that he has with politics, which in some ways is very surprising today. I mean, you have him actually getting elected to Congress at one point. You have him you know, running for various public offices or, or aspiring to various public offices mm -hmm. without success. But you, so you were talking about a person who is not a, quote, journalist, in the sense of just being only a journalist or only an editor, but we're talking about a person who is really a very public figure in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's, he's, he's a figure that I think, you know, maybe, maybe 20 years ago, uh, maybe 25 years ago would have been harder to place. Um, uh, because we, 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 we've tended to see journalism as being kind of a, a realm of objectivity or, or a, a aspirations to ob objectivity, um, kind of separate from, from the, the, the workings of politics. Now, that has obviously changed very, very dramatically with the rise of the Internet and the rise of kind of partisan television networks and, and, and so on. Um, so we can kind of understand what he was a little bit, a little bit better, um, in, in a way nowadays, uh, or in the, in the present moment, but, but you're absolutely right. He, he was, um, a figure who, who saw his journalism as being, um, as being very, very political, um, and being really essential to the workings of politics. Um, in particular for him, he, he was, he was promoting the, 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 the policies and ideology of, of the Whig party. Um, uh, and so it, it, you know, he, he does kind of 
bleed over into into the political realm, and he uses his power and and this kind of celebrity that he gets uh, in in order in order to do that. It's also, I think, important to note as you do in the book that it's not just about identifying with the cause in the sense of getting a readership, but that it's also can be very financially important because, as you explain in the book, he's not much of a businessman. No, he's a, he's a he's a terrible he's a terrible businessman. Um, you know, right up to the end of his life, uh, the the end of his life, um, he he's he's basically you would think that he would have have made a lot of money, um, and he really he really hasn't uh, because because he's a terrible businessman. Um, but it, early on in his career, he he is he's caught between these two paradigms of. Uh, of journalism, one uh, one a kind of older paradigm that is very much tied to um, the the kind of operations and organization of political parties, where newspapers are party organs and they're they're kind of supported by political parties. Um, but he's moving into an age where newspapers are becoming independent. So, like those those penny newspapers or cheap cheap newspapers that I mentioned earlier. Um, they're independent of political parties. Um, they are they are supported just by their their sales on the street and their and their subscriptions. Uh, and Greeley, as this political editor, is is kind of caught between these two uh, caught between these two these two business models. Ultimately, um, you know, he does he does succeed in making the New York Tribune the the newspaper that really um, made him famous and was his was his major platform. He does succeed in making that independent of, uh, of, of party organization, but it's something that, uh, that takes some, some, some doing. That's where I thought it was really interesting uh, getting into that part of the book, which is that you, you describe how people were making it profitable, like, you know, like Bennett with the New York Sun, and it was much more of the sensationalism. It was much more of the, the you know, the dirty underbelly of, of New York, as you put it, and, and how this is the kind of thing that, that was off-putting. And so with Greeley, it seems like he is bringing a bit more of a older aesthetic and showing how it can profit in the then modern, you know, 1830s, 1840s uh, publishing marketplace in New York City. Right, exactly. He 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 wants to show that you can have a kind of um, a, a, a newspaper that can succeed in the marketplace uh, without playing to the kind of base interests or, or low-grade tastes of the masses, that you can have a kind of elevating and uplifting newspaper that can also survive um, on its own. So in the, in the prospectus of, of the Tribune, when he's about to start it, he calls it, I think, a paper that should be welcome at the family fireside or something like that. Um, when, he, when he founds the, um, uh, the New Yorker, his, 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 his first weekly newspaper, um, he says, he has a line about how there are people who tell us we cannot succeed without humbug, which is kind of, for him, describes uh, the, the, the kind of untruthful, uh, sensationalized workings of the popular press. And he, he says, we respond to those people, we shall try. Um, and this is, you know, this is precisely what he wants to do. He wants to succeed without humbug. He wants to succeed without this, um, without this, this low-level content that is just playing to, um, you know, the, the the masses. So, what was the New York Tribune like as a newspaper, and and to whom did it appeal as a, in terms of readership? 
Yeah, so the New York Tribune is, is a very funny thing um, because it's called the New York Tribune, um, but its real base of support was outside of New York City. Um, again, Greeley has this, this very funny relationship with New York. It's this place that he absolutely needs. Uh, he needs it in order to become the kind of figure that he becomes. Uh, but it's also a place that he that he kind of despises and that, let's be honest, doesn't really have a huge constituency of people who are um, who are kind of into what he what what he is what he is trying to do. So the, the Tribune is never, never all that popular within New York City itself. It has this daily edition um, that has, you know, a modest circulation, but not not a circulation that matches uh Bennett's, uh, Bennett's New York Herald. Um, but he has this huge base of support outside of New York City um, in a weekly edition. So every week, um, Greeley and his editors produce a kind of weekly digest of the Tribune, the, the weekly Tribune, um, that goes out through the mail to places all across the country, especially, um, especially in the North, mostly, mostly in the North. Um, and has this huge following of people, um, you know, extending from, from Northern New England into, um, into the kind of Yankee parts of the, of the Midwest, all the way out into Iowa and, and, and Wisconsin. Um, and these people kind of worship Greeley. They, they, they see Greeley in a lot of ways as the oracular figure that he imagines himself to be. Uh, they first of all, they think that he writes every word of the newspaper, which is not not true. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, they, they really they really see Greeley as as this kind of this kind of voice. Um, you know, and it was said that that the farmers and tradesmen in these far flung places that would have had uh, subscriptions to the to the New Yorker that there would be three things that they would read: their their Bible, their Shakespeare. Um, and 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 their and their tribute. Uh, what if I can indulge you with one more one more story about this? No, oh, please do. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson um, was out on a speaking tour um, in 1854, um, as as people like that did. He took a speaking tour to all the different lyceums and um, public forums uh, uh, around the country, and this was a reliable way to make money. And he's he's way out in 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 the Midwest. Um, and he's writing a letter about this experience to, uh, the Scottish thinker, Thomas Carlyle. Uh, and he notes that he's kind of like a week behind Horace Greeley on this speaking tour. And he's just amazed and astonished at the crowds that Greeley is getting and the kind of buzz that Greeley is getting. Um, and he tells Carlyle that Greeley is the spiritual father of these people, uh, and that he does all their thinking in theory at a rate of $2 a year. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> so you have, you know, really as a figure and, and it, you make it a uh, point in the book of noting that, you know, we see him predominantly as a Northern figure and this gets to something that you sure. argue later in the book, but you also know that he does have a readership in the South that while he becomes an incredibly controversial figure in the South in the 1850s that you note by the correspondence he received in the South from the Southerners that he was actually, you're reaching out to an audience there as well. Well, that's certainly what, what he hoped. Um, and he, I, I think he does have a small readership. It's very, very hard to, to kind of 
gauge exactly what that readership was. Um, you know, there, there's all kinds of anecdotal evidence that um, Southern postmasters would refuse to deliver uh, the, the the Tribune to 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 the to the people who had paid for their subscriptions. There are stories of of copies of the Tribune being doctored to look like the New York Herald so that they can trick the postmasters and get it out to the to the pe- these people in the South. Um, you know, so it's it's very hard to quantify what the readership is, but Greeley kind of divines this readership. He has this idea that 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 there there's this kind of mass of people in the South, especially the non-slaveholding yeomanry, who are who are desperate for for something like the New York Tribune and are the kind of natural constituency uh, of the Tribune. And these are these people. If you can just get them the Tribune, if you can just get them the information and the ideas that they need, they will topple. Uh, they will topple the planter class. They will topple the slave power. So, like a lot of like a lot of um, Republicans, Lincoln was was the same way. This kind of sort of misplaced faith in the Southern yeomanry. Um, and so, anything that Greeley gets from from the South and from these people who he thinks are out there in these great masses, he interprets as um, as evidence that, that 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 there's this kind of revolution that's just waiting. If you can just get them. Uh, if you can just get them the Tribune. This is relevant to what you're uh, examining in the book because you're not just talking about how Greeley is functioning with energy. You're talking about this vision that he develops, that he uh, that he advocates for, that he uh, that he promotes in the pages of the New York Tribune of, of, of American nation. What, what exactly is this vision of nationhood that he has and uh, how does – he developed it in over the course of the 1830s, sure. 40s, and 50s. Sure. Well, I guess the place to, the place to begin is to just say that that like a lot of Americans in the 19th century, um, Greeley understood the United States, the American nation, in kind of providential world historical terms. You know, America was destined to stand as this model of liberty and self government uh, for the rest of the world. To, to follow and emulate. Uh, but at the same time, there are these internal problems. You know, 40, 50, 60 years after the revolution, there are all these ways in which American nationalism feels incomplete, um, not fully realized. It's not this kind of organic idea or experience that it is for, uh, for European nations. You know, it's beset by these regional differences and these sectional tensions, particularly over slavery, um, that that keep on cropping up. Um, and so, you know, in the world that Greeley grows up in, and in the the print culture that Greeley grows up in, um, you know, I think there are really these ways in which American nationalism is oriented around the project of making the nation whole, uh, oriented around kind of resolving these these problems and contradictions uh, of, of, of American nationalism. And so, you know, I, I really think that his theory of journalism as a kind of unifying and nationalizing um, force comes out of that, comes out of the, the kind of powerful and yet, and yet at the same time weak and kind of contradictory nationalism um, of the early republic and the print culture that is very much geared toward trying to fix those problems and, and contradictions. So he kind of takes that and, 
and puts it into a, a popular journalistic platform. What is makes this so vitally important, as you point out in the book, is that he's doing this, though, at a time when you're seeing this growing sectional impetus yeah. over the issue of slavery. And that's the tension that I in those chapters that I thought was really fascinating, how he is promoting this vision, and he never loses this vision. He, he, he holds the fastest vision through his entire life. And yet yeah. he, at the same time, is trying to reconcile it with his response to this issue, which he doesn't shy away from, but he's trying to base it's it's sort of like he's he's got the square peg and he's trying to ram right. into the round hole and he does right. it in, in, in print for, for decades. Yeah. 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 I mean I I, I, I think that it gets really interesting in the midst of the sectional crisis of the of the eighteen fifties. Um Greeley, you know, there's, there's kind of this great irony of, of the story of Greeley in the 1850s. He does exactly what he sets out to do in a lot of ways in that decade in the midst of the sectional crisis, which is to create a community, uh, what, what, he, what he called as a, as a young journalist, a community of thought and feeling uh, among people through, through print, through journalism. Obviously, there, there are other things other important things happening politically, the formation of the Republican Party and so forth. Uh, but he's a really, really important figure in kind of helping to, to, to use Anderson's, Benedict Anderson's language, to imagine the community of the North, imagine the community of the Republican Party um, through his journalism. And so he becomes an, a kind of oracle um, in, in that process. But, but as you say, um, he becomes a, a sectional oracle. He becomes he becomes an oracle to to one part of, of the country, and in a way that really accelerates um, the, the the growing sense of difference uh, between North and South. And, and bec he becomes a flashpoint for Southerners in helping them to imagine the North as um, as a separate and distinct thing. That's one of the things that I thought was really fascinating. That I did appreciate you because there's. You have also all these more focused abolitionist editors, people like William Lloyd Garrison, who are publishing and who are uh, who are the subject of much Southern ire. But as you point out, you, while Greeley himself is uh, not a f supporter of slavery, he's not as as strident on this. And yet, many Southerners, as you identify, they find Greeley to be the more. Uh, 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 you know, objectionable figure in, in some yeah, ways. Absolutely. They, I mean, they're certainly aware of William Lloyd Garrison. They're certainly aware of the abolitionist movement. Um, but, but in a way, Greeley, Greeley is, is more frightening um, because, because he has this incredible platform because uh, the Tribune has this massive circulation um, across, across the North um, and so they project a lot of their fears and ideas um, and kind of horrors about the North and what they see as this kind of fanatical um, abolitionist North onto Greeley. Uh, because, again, because Greeley is, is, is so popular and has such a huge platform. I, I thought it was interesting as well how you examine how it how this uh, ish, this struggle, this this conflict shapes Greeley's nationalism. How I, I love the way you defined it in the book, where you're talking about how he develops a, a sectional ideal of American nationalism. You know, it's, it's 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 much it's very it's much more 
which is to understandable to a degree, which is, you know, he's reflecting his background as a Yankee concept, but it's one right. in which he's basically sort of wanting to see the entire nation writ large as, as embodying that relatively parochial concept. Absolutely. And this is something that goes back to his, his kind of hopes and dreams for the Southern yeomanry. Um, he sees those people as, as kind of dormant or sleeping Yankees. Uh, there's people who just, who just, again, just need Greeley uh, or, or somebody else to, to kind of tell them who they are. Um, uh, so absolutely, it's, 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 this, um, it's, it's this projection. You know, but it gets, it gets into what is a bigger theme in the book, this, this just larger problem of what American nationalism is in the 19th century, in a lot of ways, the impossibility of American nationalism, because nobody can really agree on, on, on what it is. Now, your description of Horace Greeley, when I was reading it, reminded me of another figure who had a very similar uh, background, which was Abraham Lincoln, in the sense that he comes from a, a group of a family of what you might think of as a, a failed farmer who develops a Whig identity from this and who then goes into politics. And you have this point at which when Lincoln comes becomes president in 1860, I was expecting Greeley to you know, welcome him with, with, with open arms, to see him as a kindred spirit. But what you describe when Lincoln becomes this national figure, and more specifically when he becomes president, is really isn't quite as uh, accepting of Abraham Lincoln. You describe a tension that exists between the two men uh, over the course of the Civil War. Why is that? Well, I think... I think because he basically Greeley sees himself as a bigger deal than Abraham Lincoln. You know, like a lot of people, especially kind of in the established Eastern world of, of kind of East Coast or Northeast politics, um, you know, Lincoln is, Lincoln is, this, is this kind of nobody. Um, and you know, Greeley sort of expects that, that, that Lincoln should, um, should, should kind of follow his instructions, should, should, should take his <laughs> advice. And so, you know, there, there, there are all kinds of moments where, um, where, where Greeley, where, where this, this kind of plays out in different ways. There, there's, um, their, their paths cross at one point, um, in, in 1860 and, uh, or late in 1860, early 1861, um, after Lincoln has been elected, and they're both on the same train, and uh, Greeley refuses to go see Lincoln. Uh, you know, Lincoln is the president-elect, but Greeley thinks that Lincoln should come see him. Uh, you know, which again, just just back to this idea that that, that Greeley sees himself as uh, Greeley sees himself as as kind of a bigger deal than Lincoln, and so Lincoln should show due deference to him. Um, and this this plays out through. Through, through the Civil War, where, where Greeley kind of presumes to be able to tell Lincoln what to do. He writes, he writes letters to Lincoln, both private and public, um, sort of saying, this is, this is what you need to do. You're doing the wrong thing. Um, you, should just, you, should just, you should just listen to me. So it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's a very fraught relationship. And it's actually a very fraught relationship from the beginning. I should mention that um, that going back to um, Lincoln's election for Senate in 1858, or Lincoln's campaign for Senate in 1858, um, Greeley is kind of wishy-washy on whether or not he's actually going to support Lincoln when Lincoln is running against 
um, Stephen A. Douglas. And this is something that Lincoln and his, um, you know, and his cohort do not forget. So, so <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking about how, how Greeley's attitude mirrors in some ways that of another New Yorker of the time, which is William Henry Seward. I was thinking about how there seems to be that New York attitude of, you know, which is fascinating to see it in Greeley, given that yeah. Very, uh, you know, fraught relationship that he has with his adopted hometown. But yeah. he, then, he, he seems to definitely, by the 1860s, internalize the sense that, you know, you're a New Yorker. You can pretty much make those decisions for people. Absolutely. Now, now Seward is, an interesting, is, is another interesting figure for Greeley because, um, yes, they share this kind of imperious attitude toward Lincoln, particularly um, when Lincoln is just, is just emerging. But... Uh, Greeley has also fallen out with 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 William Henry Seward by this point. Um, uh, they they had a falling out in in the 1850s over over you know uh, political political matters and uh, kind of in the midst of the breakup of the Republican of, of the Whig Party and the creation of the Republican Party. Um, and then here's another here's another kind of funny layer to all of this. Um, Greeley is really is really an instrumental figure in in um, doing in uh, Seward's presidential aspirations, and Greeley throws his support behind uh, uh, behind Lincoln, basically to to spite Seward, who he's who he's had a falling out with. So <laughs> this is all very complicated. So how does Greeley respond to the Civil War over the course of it? Does he? Uh, you know, to, to what degree is he trying to uh, fit the events to his nationalism and to what degree does his nationalism change in response to the fact that you have the most, you know, dramatic, uh, you know, conflict and most dramatic challenge to nationalism in, 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 in American history? Yeah, Greeley has a hard time with, with the Civil War. Um, that's probably the place to start. Uh, Lincoln sort of sums this up. Uh, by 1864, he says, Greeley is an old shoe, good for nothing now, whatever he has been. Um, and, and, you know, the basis for this is that, is that Greeley becomes this really kind of unaccountable figure during the war. Um, he is all over, all over the place in his, uh, in his positions. You, you kind of get a, a case of whiplash after reading through his story of, of the war. Um, you know, there are moments when he seems like he's on the radical vanguard of the of the Republican Party um, um, in, in pushing for 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 immediate emancipation. Um, you know, at others, he is flirting with crackpot ideas for peace on very limited terms and seems willing to kind of sell out the whole idea of, of, of emancipation. Um, uh, so it's like, what exactly does this guy believe? What exactly does he think? Because. You, you you can't really understand what what he's doing. And the way I try to understand it in the Civil War chapter is to say that Greeley could only understand this event in these national terms that he understood everything in. That this idea that the Civil War had to be this kind of triumph of American of American nationhood, that that, that had to be the outcome. Um, of of this of this massive of this massive conflict, um, and so, you know, he's really he's really kind of forcing this onto um, onto you know events that don't really fit that fit that scheme. And so, uh, 
you know, I, I sort of think his inconsistency comes out of this effort to make the Civil War into this, um, you know, the, the kind of the, the triumph of American nationhood, even though clearly it is, it is, it is a moment when, when the American nation has fundamentally failed. And to what degree does this shape his post-war activities? Because you have this very, uh, on the surface, very uh, odd contrast with hit with Greeley as a, uh, as a, a, a very much of a, of a, of a Northern, uh, you know, editor, a Yankee editor who has championed this vision of nationhood that the Southerners rejected, who after the war, uh, uh, undertakes this dramatic s- series of steps, and most notably, he bails out Jefferson Davis. I mean, so uh, to, to, what, to what degree is it, is it reflecting? Uh, is it a product of that experience of that effort to try to you know maintain that vision of nationhood? Yeah, well, so 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 his kind of his understanding of this conflict shapes his his again seemingly unaccountable and bizarre. Um, uh, behavior and activity after it's over. Um, you know, if, if the idea of Horace Greeley going to uh, going to bail out um, Jefferson Davis from jail um, is something that you know nobody could possibly have 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 predicted or imagined um, if they were just thinking about the the the, the antebellum um, uh, Republican Horace Greeley. Nor could they imagine Horace Greeley. Um, Ultimately, getting the Democratic Party's nomination for uh, for, for president in eighteen seventy two. But again, you know, this goes back to 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 a lot of what, what we've talked about here. Greeley has this idea that that there is this kind of core nationalism that exists uh, across the country, um, exists among among uh, white Southerners. Um, and he again thinks that if you just sort of can get to these people, if you can just speak to them the right way, you can kind of awaken this this shared feeling that must be uh, that must be within them. And in the midst of um, his bizarre travels through 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 the Reconstruction um, era until his death in 1872, um, he actually says that. If we had just been able to reach these people before the Civil War, um, again, back to this idea, if we could just get them their copies of the New York Tribune, uh, there really probably wouldn't have been a Civil War because we could have had we could have had um, we could have had this kind of collective awakening. Um, we we could have empowered the non-slaveholding whites. We could have had a gradual and easy end to slavery as opposed to this kind of destructive process, um, um, you know, with, with, the, with the war and so on. So his, his, his path, his very bizarre path through Reconstruction is, is laid, you know, it comes, comes uh, is, is built upon the very bizarre path through, uh, through the Civil War. And yet it's also fascinating about how it, what it says about this idea that he has of, of nationhood. I mean, it's, it, it's impressive how committed he is to it throughout his career, as you demonstrate how, you know, literally the country breaking apart doesn't cause him to shake it, doesn't shake it much. Right. And how he is trying to in, adopt, you know, you know, he, he, he sees this very much. This isn't about, you know, Horace Greeley saying, you know, I want to be president, although, you know, he definitely, you know, 
desires that, but he really is trying to, you know, he sees this as part of achieving this vision of American nationhood, which if anything, he, you make clear now more than ever during reconstruction, America needs to be thought of as a nation, as opposed to the still very much divided country that it was in 1872. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, as I say in the book, you know, four years of 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 just brutal civil war, um, you know, seven years of uh, of of violent resistance to the results of the civil war by by white Southerners, they just it, it, it they can't shake Greeley of 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 these of these convictions um, that that he has. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. Well, that's it's a that's that's a good question because <laughs> I've I've been a little bit all over the place and trying to figure out what I want to do next. Um, I've had a I've had a, a few different ideas and have, have kind of been chasing down down some different leads. Um, but what I've been working on um, pretty consistently. Uh, over the over the last few months, and seems to be the thing that I'm that I'm working on, um, is a project about New York City um, in the uh, kind of between 1850, 1815 and eighteen fifty or eighteen fifteen and eighteen sixty. Um, I really really enjoyed uh, kind of getting into this world of New York City um, uh, through Greeley. So. You know, the, the 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 in the first chapter where I talk about his rise in journalism, I was very uh, very captivated by um, by this history of New York City and its moment of um, of becoming um, the mo its moment of becoming the kind of the the nation's metropolis um, and everything that goes with that. And so, my idea is for a project I'm calling "Humbugs of New York." <laughs> um, which is to, which is to take that's that that was the name of a of a pamphlet that came out. Uh, I mentioned it in the in the book, a pamphlet that came out in I think eighteen thirty seven. Um, to take uh, to take certain characters who are who are phonies in some way or another humbugs um, and use them as a way to try to create um, this very very bizarre thing that is rising up. <laughs> On the uh, on the East Coast, um, in 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 this moment, uh, and that place being being New York City. So that that's what like, I've been up to. That sounds like a very fun project. I, I hope that when you complete it, we can have you back on the New Books Network to uh, talk about it. I'd be I'd be delighted. Well, Jake Lungberg, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too, Mark. I really enjoyed this. Thank you.